So there's a name um, that I mentioned back in the fall that you may be familiar with. His name is David Foster Wallace. He was a, a really budding author who had really reached the top of his game. Um, ten years ago, he took his own life. And the ironic or tragic part of his story is that just a few years before he took his own life, he wrote a short story called Good Old Neon. And the protagonist in that short story is actually contemplating taking his life. And the reason that protagonist is contemplating that is because he's come to the conclusion that he spends a lot of time and energy all devoted to creating an impression in others about what he's like. And that impression he's out to create is one that he realizes is a far cry from who he really is, and so he only can think of himself as one thing, a fraud. And that's as destabilizing as it can be. And in the midst of that sorrow, in the midst of that that paralysis that he feels, he seeks out a therapist by the name of Dr. Gustafson. And I want to read you a a short passage from that short story, and then I'll, I'll show you a quote from that same story. But but listen to what the protagonist believes about what his therapist has told him. It turned out that one of Dr. Gustafson's basic operating premises was the claim that there were really only two basic fundamental orientations a person could have toward the world. Love and fear. And that they couldn't coexist. In other words, each day of your life was spent in service to one of these masters or the other. And... It's like the Bible says, one cannot serve two masters. And that one of the worst things about the conception of competitive, achievement-oriented masculinity that America supposedly hardwired into its males was that it caused a more or less constant state of fear that made genuine love next to impossible. Today's males were so constantly afraid of not measuring up that they had to spend all their time convincing others of their masculine validity in order to ease their own insecurity, which made genuine love next to impossible. And he ends that quote by saying this, although it seemed a little bit simplistic to see this fear is just a male problem, I mean, try watching a girl stand on a scale sometime, It turns out that Dr. Gustafson was very nearly right in his concept of the two. Maybe the real root of my problem was not fraudulence, but a basic inability to love. The reason a story like that captures the imagination in a culture like ours is because there's a lot of people, male and female in this world, that feel a lot like they're all they do in this life is try to create an impression. To give everybody else a version of themselves that they think those people will then accept And they realize that that is at far variance from who they really are. And then they also realize, like every opportunity cost, the more effort you put into that effort, the less effort you can actually be into loving people. Because you're not vulnerable. And you're not there for them. You're not present. And that's what that story is about. And that is as emblematic of where we are in a culture today as ever might be. We have an understanding of ourselves that makes us so fearful of ourselves that we're unavailable to anybody genuinely. And any time we try to be available for them, it's more for our own benefit than for theirs. We're in a study of a letter, a real heartfelt, forthright letter that the Apostle Paul sent to some churches at the south of Galatia, which is now southern Turkey. 
And so far in that letter, we heard Paul make a case for why the gospel, the message that he's come to bring to them about Jesus, is not of his own making. It's not a deduction. It's not just sort of a, a natural intuition. It's of divine origin. And that, that same message, that there's a subtle but counterfeit form of it that they were hearing that they have to repudiate if they want to hear about the freedom that comes in this message. But where we are in that letter today, in Paul's letter to the church of Galatia, is that the gospel about Jesus comes to us to convince us primarily of an understanding not only of God, but of ourselves. And it's that understanding of ourselves that's meant to free us. The guy in the short story, he's trying to break free of that impulse to create an impression. That same impulse holds us all hostage. Paul's out to tell us who we are, and more importantly, whose we are. And who and whose we are centers on one word, the idea of a son. A loaded term if there ever were one. And we want to listen to perhaps the most concentrated passage in all of the letter that speaks to what it means to be a son of God. We're going to look at it in three ways. What does it mean to be a son? Secondly, how does one become a son? Aren't we all sons and daughters? Well, no, there's something to it. And then thirdly, by what strength are we even able to really live as a true son? So that it's more than just some sort of term of endearment. What is a son? How do you become a son? What strength do you have to live as a son? Because it's that understanding that will help shrivel up the inclination to become something that you're not that will then strengthen you to be somebody that can love. If you're able, would you stand? We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 26 of his Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. Galatians 3, starting in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And of a son, than an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It will not be a stretch for me to tell you that if you were just to study Scripture really plainly, it makes it a pretty clear case that if you know God and you belong to God, then you are first and foremost a servant. A servant of Him. Because given God's majesty and given our utter dependence on just our next breath for whatever else he set into motion, 
It's proper that we think of ourselves as a servant unto him. Period. We could just stop there and it would be enough. Which is what makes Paul's statement here in this passage, or at least it should be, that much more astonishing. Because when Paul speaks of us as a son, as each individual person as a son who has faith in Christ, that's nuts to them. Why do I say that? Study the Old Testament, and at best, obliquely, even Isaiah refers maybe to the whole nation of Israel collectively as a son. Paul here is sort of deepening the metaphor and saying anybody, any individual who has faith in Jesus, they themselves are sons. You are all sons, those of you who have faith in Christ Jesus. All right, fine, I'm a son. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a son? As I listen to Paul, I see two ways that it means to be a son. And the first has everything to do with what you see when you see boys come home from a tour of duty in the military. They hit the terminal. They break through the gate. They're carrying their sack. And if they have family show up at that terminal, you know what that family does. You might have been one of those family members. You run. You bolt, you grab, you throw, make them throw everything down on the ground so that you can hug them until they have to ask you to stop so that they can breathe. You're thrilled. They're relieved. They're home. And in that moment, what are you communicating? The ultimate welcome. Because that's what it is. For Paul to speak of us as sons is first of all to speak of those who have the unqualified welcome of God. That's what it means to be a son, to have his welcome. Now, here I'm going to give you the first of two sidebars, okay? Because for every son that comes home from a tour of duty, there are just as many daughters that hit that same terminal and have that same experience. There is no distinction in the kind of thrill, delight, or ecstasy in the parents of daughters at war coming home as it is for their parents of sons coming home. It's the same thing, the same unqualified welcome and love and delight. So when Paul says, you are all sons who have faith in Christ Jesus, he is talking about a universal idea of welcome, but he's expressing it in a local cultural idiom, like the word son. What do I mean? Study the Old Testament. You know first, you know very well that quite often it's the firstborn son that is given deference and authority and decisions and the inheritance. And, and interestingly, though, if you look kind of beneath the surface of the Old Testament, you find plenty of instances in which God is sort of subverting that, right? Like, Ishmael is born first, firstborn. It's Isaac through whom the promise comes. Esau is born first. It's Jacob who ends up with the blessing in that funny story. So yes, firstborn sons have this priority, and yet every once in a while you hear God go, oh, watch this. The sons have priority. But when Paul says in verse 28, as you heard him say, there's neither male nor female, he's making it pretty clear. The dignity one possesses, the worth one possesses, the access to God's salvation that one might have is never and never will be tied to gender. Period. 
The welcome isn't tied to gender, and therefore sonship is just a way of speaking that is culturally reflective but is inclusive of those, whether you have an X or a Y chromosome. That's my first sidebar. What does it mean to be a son? It's to have the unqualified full welcome of God. But it's also this. It's to live for the full pleasure of God. It's to live for the full pleasure of God. And on three separate occasions, you hear Paul refer to the word heir. The heir of inheritance. And you're familiar with that because we still have inheritances and we still have heirs. Those who are heirs are the designate of an estate. They are entrusted to give responsibility to whatever they've inherited. And those who bestow or bequeath, they have, they have some say in how that um, estate is managed by the heir, but in large part, they would hope that the heir would employ what they've inherited in a way that would please the one who gave it to them. Paul is saying, if you're a son, you're an heir, because you have been, you will receive what God has entrusted to you. Paul doesn't specify what that inheritance is here. You gotta, you gotta kinda stick around and wait for him to unpack that for it. But right now, the Paul, the point that Paul's trying to make is this. If you're an heir, you use what you inherit to the pleasure of the one who gave it to you. It's irreducibly true of whatever the inheritance is that, that it implies a regard for not only what is granted, but who has granted it to you. You live for the full pleasure of the one who calls you unto himself to be a son. So what we're talking about here is not sonship full stop. We're talking about sonship that is mature. A mature sonship. The first three verses of chapter 4, Paul talks about what it means to be immature and therefore by implication what is an immature version of sonship. And he uses a a very human example to make a contrast to make his point. He, he speaks of heirs. Anybody that's an heir, if you were inherited any estate, at some point you were a kid. You just were. It's unavoidable. And as children, even though you might be an heir of an estate, you, you really are in charge of nothing while you're a kid. Um, I was scrambling to find the name of that kid who's the, the kid of William and Kate. It's, uh, I looked it up this week. It's uh, George Alexander Lewis. In case you want to name your kids that way. Um, I think he's like five or six now, right? Um, he's the heir. He, he will one day, he's in the royal line of succession. It will not be unsurprising for at some point in his life when he grows that he will be the commander of regiments. But you know what he's in command of right now? Legos. That's the extent of his authority. The authority over him has great authority. And that authority comes in the form of not only his parents, but of his governesses, of his tutors, of his mentors, all of that. And their authority over him, the, the, the law they lay down with him, he has a certain form of relationship to those commands. And that, that relationship to the commands or to that authority over him right now, you might say, is rather utilitarian. Meaning this. He knows what those laws are, but he understands them primarily in terms of either payoff or punishment. He knows that if he does one thing, he's more likely to get ice cream. And if he does another thing, he's more likely to get spanked. And so his version 
of connection to authority and to expectation is more and less in terms of compliance. He doesn't care about the wisdom or the logic or the coherence or the beauty or the glory of all the ethics that are laid out for him. He just knows ice cream versus spanking. How shall I choose? To him, right now, his relationship to laws or authority is, if you will, immature. Because he doesn't care about the internal logic of those commands. Paul is saying, look, mature heirs live for the pleasure of God by having an understanding that there really is a beauty, a coherence, a logic, a wisdom, and a glory to God's authority over them. If you and I never grasp that internal logic and coherence and glory of what he's called to us, we will never live as mature heirs. We will think of the law not in terms of God's pleasure, but only in terms of our payoff. And if you want an example of that in real world that seems almost really understandable it's, and, 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 and uh, reasonable and believable, you just have to turn to Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, which is really ineptly characterized. It's really the story of two sons. You know what happens to the younger son. He says to the father, forget it. You're practically dead to me. Give me my inheritance. I'm out. I know better about how to live. And then he goes and he discovers he doesn't. Comes to his senses, turns around. Father scans for him on the horizon. When he first begins to make him out, the younger son approaches and the father runs to him. And what does he do? Lifts up his tunic and grabs him and embraces him and doesn't let him finish his speech and says, it's time for a party. He gives him his unqualified welcome because he's an unqualified son. But it's the older son who rather than rejoicing at the fact that his younger son was lost and now is found, he seethes. He seethes at what his father has done. And what does it indicate about that older son? That anything he really did for his father was not really out of love for his father, but mostly out of compliance with his father, that he might get something from his father, whether his father were alive or dead or not. That's a version of of immature heir. Because his relationship to the authority of his father, his relationship to the commands that his father might have laid down is all in terms of compliance. That's not sonship. That's not mature heir. That's something else. We need something to intervene that we might live not only as those with the unqualified welcome, but also as those who live for the full pleasure of God in a mature way. So, how do, we, how do we become that kind of son? That's my second point. Not only what that sonship means, but, but how does one become that one? On what basis can anybody say, yep, I'm a son? To get to the basis of our confidence, Paul's got to narrow it down for us rule out a couple of things that we might otherwise appeal to and instead get to the, to the heart of the matter. And so he, he outlines two ways that are, that are false starts, that are false reasons for thinking that you can consider yourself a son. And the first one has everything to do with what we've already heard in verse 28. There's neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, but we are all one in Christ Jesus, which is Paul's way of saying... Your reason for believing that you might be a son of God will never and has never been tied to ethnicity, to station, or to gender. 
human categories that we will always make note of. They have been universally appealed to as reasons for creating these striations in society and in families and in cultures and in nations. But those categories don't apply when it comes to who might know themselves as a son or a daughter. The gospel denies those categories as the basis for his welcome or as a basis for inviting you to live for his pleasure. And to us and to our ears, we think, yeah, okay, great, big deal. You know what? Our country was kind of founded on that night, that idea of equality, even though itself was a sordid um, explanation of it or expression of it that we only could come to reckon with in recent centuries. But to say that your ethnicity or your gender or your station was no longer the basis upon which you could claim God's favor, that's, that's a shot across the bow of every society at that time. It can't be overstated. Those categories didn't matter when it came to who might have the favor of God. Now, here's sidebar number two. Does the gospel eradicate those distinctions such that we don't even think about them? And what I mean by that, are you no longer black or white or Asian or um, Native American? Are you no longer male or female if you're in Jesus? No, no, no. Those things remain. Those distinctions have their own beauty and glory to them. Those distinctions have a certain aptitude and fullness that the others do not. And therefore, those distinctions, they bear an authority to them. They bear a glory to them. And therefore, those are not erased. They're just not made more important than who we understand ourselves as sons or children of God. They're made secondary. But they're still significant. And we all have to reckon with that. The first false basis is in terms of those categories. The second false basis that Paul wants us to reckon with is this. You and me will never be confident of having the favor of God based upon our adherence to God's moral code. No, this should not sound new to you because Paul has been riffing on that one for weeks in this study of this letter. The law is holy, it's righteous, it's good. He cherishes it, he champions it but it reveals God's proper jealousy and fierce love over us. But Paul was trying to tell us, as he's told us before, you might want to make, you might want to build your case that God might favor you on the basis of how well you do in following his way. You might want to do that. You'll probably naturally do that. But the best you can expect from the law is this, a sobering discovery of just how far you are from its character. W.H. Auden wrote a poem. I forgot to make a slide for it. Here it is. More than ever, life out there is goodly, miraculous, lovable. But we shan't, not since Stalin and Hitler, trust ourselves ever again. We know that subjectively all is possible. There but for the grace of God go we that we would not have done the same thing in Florida this week that that person did. But for a set of different circumstances, what would we be like? Elaine de Bodden is as atheist as they come, and he likes to throw shade on Christians whenever he has the chance. But in a recent interview about love and relationships, he said that he was rather endeared to the whole idea of depravity. 
He actually considers original sin to be a rather accurate portrayal of humanity because he says, rather than when two people come together and start discovering one another, that they should think and focus entirely on what is positive or, or common to one another, they probably should ask themselves on the front end of the relationship, so, how are you nuts? Because he finds great honesty, great authority, and acknowledging on the front end of any relationship that you are broken. And broken in ways that it will only be a matter of time before you discover in one another. So stop lying. And it's in that spirit that we realize that if you're looking for some sort of record that you can create for yourself that would then give you a confidence that you might have God's favor, you will wait a long time and practice the art of self-deception again. What then is the basis then for us thinking that we might ever know ourselves and believe ourselves to be a son? He saves the best for last in verses 4 and 5. He says this to us. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus is one of us. He was born of a woman like you and me. He was born a human like you and me. He gets us because he is us. But he's also born answerable to the law. The law has authority over him. And what's different between him and us, though, is this. It's by his perfect obedience and the infinite value of his sacrifice that we are bought back from an enslavement bought back from an enslavement to our sin, bought back from our enslavement to a destiny that we have no capacity to overturn apart from his intervention. That's what Paul puts under the broad heading of redemption. And that redemption comes in Jesus. And through that redemption, he says this, we receive the adoption as sons. What an interesting term he might choose to speak of us in that way. Adoption. You, you and I are familiar with it. It's, it's a legal term. It's a binding, irrevocable conferral of status that not only confers a family name, but makes sure that everything is, that is of the family now belongs to them too. They're an heir. And that that person who was adopted didn't have a thing to do with it. It was in the entire prerogative of the one to adopt them, to choose them. And it was not like choosing a tomato whether or not it was bruised. He only chose bruised tomatoes because that's all there are. We can't become sons by making an impression on God. We only receive the sonship on the basis of, if you will, the impression that God's Son makes by His sacrifice. That's how we become sons. And therefore, that has a huge implication for how you think of yourself right now if you consider yourself to be a son, especially on the days when you feel like, uh, if I'm a son, boy, it sure doesn't feel like it. If your sonship was wrought in eternity, then it cannot be rescinded in time which is just a highfalutin way of saying, if God chose you before there was a you, then there's nothing about you that can undo that deal because your adoption never had anything to do with you. 
It had everything to do with him. That's the gospel, folks. It's based not on your sacrifices, but on the sacrifice of the son. And with that comes a new status. A status whereby you have his welcome. A status by where you're invited to live for his pleasure. But to live for his pleasure without trying to merit his love. Oh my gosh, if that is not the most subtle distinction in terms of motivation, and yet as far a world apart as you could ever imagine. You are to live for his pleasure. Paul says himself, I aim for his pleasure. But he is under no delusion that by aiming for his pleasure, he's out to merit God's love. And you and I will spend the rest of our lives remembering and trying to remember that. To live for his pleasure. See, you can think of God's law in one of two ways. Like laws that come down from a warden and laws that come down from your parent. A warden doesn't really care whether you obey or not. And if you don't, you'll spend a night in the box. And he will smile and sleep well at night because he doesn't care. But a parent will wring their hands and long to see you formed. More on that next week. But those expectations, those commands, that parent will long for you to live for his pleasure. But no parent worth their weight in salt will ever ask that they live for his pleasure but make their love contingent upon it. You become a son. You become a son who is a son or a daughter by what he has done for you. Last week, if you were here during our congregational meeting, we laid out a broad sketch of what we think to be kind of the big idea of what Grace Mills River is and will be for the foreseeable future. And we, we distilled that down into a simple sentence about what Grace Mills River is about, namely that we're here to live for God's world as God's family in the joy of God's gospel. And if you want to hear all of that unpacked, it's all on the website. I really encourage you to do so. Grab the slides, listen to the audio, familiarize yourself with it because that's what it means to become a a family member of this community is to understand what we're here for. This passage this morning, if I could take a red pin on that screen, it has everything to do with that last phrase. In the joy of God's gospel. Paul is harping. I am harping. Martin Luther would harp on the idea That we are made his, at his work, at his prerogative, and in that we're supposed to find our joy. That's where I'm focusing. But do you not see how it goes upstream when you come to understand that joy? That the extent to which you and I believe that we are in fact sons on the basis of what he does is the extent to which we will not be out to try to create a false impression in one another's eyes about who we are. That maybe at last we'll be honest about who we are And say that with one another. And what happens when we start to get vulnerable with one another that way? We start to become a family. We put aside pretense. And we give up trying to create false impressions. And we just say, this is who I am. And that's how we become a family. And when you become a family like that, guess what? You are now furnished in a way that you were not before to live for God's world. It all goes together. And by the time you're done with me, when I die... You're going to hear this phrase and go, I am sick of it. But you'll get it, and we'll all do it together. We have a new status when we believe we are sons by faith in the Son of God. And with that status, though, we're met with a certain 
challenge. Because you probably have relatives who will lavish you with all sorts of cute little names. And you will perhaps either be embarrassed by them or just sort of roll your eyes because they're just words. And they really have no bearing on how you really even think of yourself. And I could tell you until you're blue in the face, if you have faith in Jesus, then you're a son of God. But if that's just a word, if that's just a term of endearment, it really has no power. So by what strength does the idea of you being a son have any point or potency to it other than just a term of endearment? That's where Paul lands this plane. And he lands it with what he says in verse 6, where we find the strength to believe that we're sons. Because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. God was present to us like he never has before in the person of Jesus. But God continues his presence in our midst of Jesus, just not in bodily form, because he gives us his spirit. And with that spirit, we are indwelled by it and something happens. What does the spirit do? Is he just this mysterious, enigmatic spook that we pay lip service to? Or does he so do something potent? Yes, it's the latter. And what is that? To confirm and assure and to persuade you that you are, in fact, truly sons. If you were listening to the passage in Romans 8 there at the earlier part of our service, you heard Paul explain that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. That sometimes when we voice our meager, meek, stammering prayers, calling out to God who is Father, there is something that commends unto us that reality, and that is the Holy Spirit voicing with us as we voice our Abba Father's. Something is commended unto us of that truth by speaking it. It's not a mantra. It's not something you sort of convince yourself of by saying it over and over again. It's being freed to speak as a child so that you might in fact believe that you are his child. And that, friends, is not a childish thing. It is as mature as it comes. Because only then are you acknowledging who you really are how weak you are, how frail you are. And that's how you grow. David Brooks wrote an article a few years ago based upon his own reflections about how people grow personally. And it's his argument then in that article that you grow through a series of reflections. But reflections that do their darndest to avoid becoming merely morbidly introspective and narcissistic. Like, those are two pitfalls you want to avoid in, in a time of reflection in which you grow. Instead, instead of giving this really meticulous inventory of yourself, he believes that your reflection has to kind of put some distance between you and yourself. If you want to grow through a traumatic experience, he says you've got to write about it. You've got to write down what happened. Put some distance between you and the experience. You grow through that. If, if, if you are up against an impasse, you don't know what to do, sometimes you have to, to speak to yourself in like the third person, how you would counsel yourself if somebody else that you know was in your same predicament. But he says, essential to really growing personally is to seeing yourself as part of a larger narrative. Not just your individual story, but part of something greater. And so towards the end of that article, he says this. Others see themselves in broader landscapes, in the context of longer narratives about forgiveness or redemption or setback and descent. Sounds like the gospel. 
Maturity is moving from the close-up landscape, focusing less on your own supposed strengths and weaknesses, and more on the sea of empathy in which you swim, which is the medium necessary for understanding others, oneself, and survival. Sea of empathy? You know what the sea of empathy sounds like that you're supposed to swim in? It sounds like this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, the author of Hebrews says. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, the psalmist says. And even in Jesus' own words to his disciples on any number of occasions that gets recorded in multiple Gospels, why are you so afraid? Why do you have such little faith? Oh, friends, that's the sea of empathy. And it is the Holy Spirit of God to help us put our strengths and weaknesses to the background, as important and as helpful and as noteworthy as they may be, and instead bring to the foreground our status as sons, the sea of empathy in which we must swim. The Spirit does that. And it's by that strength that we come to believe that. The Spirit gives us reason to believe we are sons so that we might have the strength to live as sons. That's where the strength comes from. And therefore, the point of this passage, I think, is really simple. Please don't be afraid to become like children. Children who ask a lot of questions all the time. Children who take refuge because they know they need refuge. Children who have to discover over time that whatever discipline comes their way is not to be confused with condemnation, but something that is for their good. Children who stop trying to pretend that they're not vulnerable. Kids do that instinctually, and for whatever reason, we try to beat that out of them, only so that later we have to say to them, you know what, maybe you have to grow back into that. Become like children, Paul is saying. That's what it means to be a son of God. Let me land it this way. Every so often, they run a column in the New York Times called Modern Love, where they invite people to share their stories of their own triumphs and travails in finding love. And a few years ago, there's a professor out west by the name of Irene Sherlock who confessed about her own tragedies in love. She's already been through two divorces and show her efforts to start a new relationship was going to be done through online dating. And so she creates the profile, but she acknowledges in the course of doing so, it felt a lot like she was putting herself out like furniture at a garage sale, uh, uh, gently used, um, a, a little threadbare. It's got years left in her. I uh, think you'll really like this article. And she did that for so long, trying to create an impression until she gave up, until she said it's not worth it. And near the end of that very transparent article, she says, if we were really honest, our ads would read this. My heart has been shattered and I'm scared. Will someone take a chance on me? This table, if it says anything to us, it is God saying to us, scared, shattered, I know. It's why I came. And I didn't really so much take a chance on you. There was no chance about it. 
I will die for you. That you might know that there is no shame in knowing and acknowledging your weakness and finding your strength in me. That's what this table is saying to you and to me. And it's why Jesus invites us to this table as often as we can. Because otherwise, we will slip into the pattern of trying to create a false impression. And with every slip, we will lose a little bit of ability to actually love. But this table comes to remind us that we are sons by his blood. And in knowing that, we might actually be honest with ourselves. And in that honesty, find the strength to love again. Because on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he said, it's my body. It's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after supper, he blessed it. And he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you will in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Christ is our Passover lamb. He was slain that we might become children of God and not be afraid to say it. And therefore, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Hallelujah. This table is not a Presbyterian table. This table is for sinners. But it's a table for those who believe that Jesus is in fact the Son. And by faith in Him we become sons and daughters of God. If that's not you yet, I encourage you to let the bread and the wine pass you by. Not to single you out, not to make a spectacle of you, but to invite you to reflection. To consider that He might by in fact inviting you to this faith, to this community, to this love, to this weakness, to this sonship.